This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 1st, 2021, and this is episode 233. I'm Scott Boom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, circuit breakers, emergency breaks, and no breaks, as provinces find different ways to deal with spiking COVID cases, which, as you all know, is entirely the fault of us young people. Today is April 1st. We won't be doing any April Fool's Day jokes on the show tonight, partially Good. because I didn't take any time to think of it. Yeah. Uh, also, because this will be coming out on April 2nd. Also, the, the internet has just really made me hate April Fool's Day. It just basically renders the whole thing unusable for a day, as even generally reliable sites and people just decide to throw up whatever stuff they feel like. I feel like the report that we released at the BC Humanist Association today about the astrological projections of every MLA was a very valuable contribution to the political zeitgeist. So I didn't actually take a look at that too much, but that actually strikes me as a little reasonable. What annoys me is stuff like, I'm not going to call it specific publications, but like when media gets in on it and starts announcing stuff that isn't happening, that happened today, when people announce like, big political things that aren't yeah you should always just generally take a critical look at anything online but also just for practical reasons you kind of got to rely on certain relatively trusted things that just renders it annoying when they all decide to just not do that for a bit Bowen Ma pretending to launch a bid for the BC Liberals I thought was tongue-in-cheek enough since it was obviously a joke Hasalem announcing he was going to run for the leadership of the Assembly of First Nations. I think people took that very seriously, and he actually had to say kind that of his motivation was inspired by the, Bowen. Yeah. So his joke, I don't think, landed as well. Yeah, that's actually part of what I was alluding to there. Yeah. So no jokes from us. But one thing you can do to keep us away from joking, or if you want to encourage us to joke more. In either case, sign up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash politicoast. If you want us to tell more jokes, sign up and tell us. If you don't want us to tell jokes, sign up and tell us not to. We are at 97 patrons. We had another start of the month drop in people's credit cards expiring. So double check your credit card every month if it needs to be reset do that patreon.com slash politicoast politicoast is in partnership with bc today british columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to bc politics sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the bc legislature delivered to your inbox every morning listeners politicoast enter the offer code citizen for access to a special rate for your free two-week trial of the newsletter go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial Well, let's get into the main only major segment today, circuit breakers and emergency breaks. Scott, what's the best metaphor to use 
to launch a new round of restrictions? Because I think we're seeing some creativity here. Yeah, it's definitely not circuit breaker. Just a circuit breaker is something you have when you want current to flow, but interrupt it when it gets too much. And I suppose in some ways that's actually an apt metaphor for how this government's treated the pandemic is, yeah, just let it go around and continue to circulate as long as it doesn't get too bad. But maybe that isn't the sort of metaphor we should really be using to uh, drive or are thinking on this one. So is the emergency brake a better thing? Like our car is out of control, the brakes aren't enough, we need to just slam the, you know, refund e-brake? Okay. I can't figure out what Quebec is using as a metaphor. I think they're just mostly using colors and they're targeting certain cities with new levels. Meanwhile, Alberta is still doing the please follow the restrictions we already have approach, which BC was at a week ago now. But let's start with BC. Let's start with the three-week circuit breaker we have. New round of restrictions as our general PSA, I can just briefly run through them if you haven't caught up. No more indoor dining. Outdoor patios are still allowed, and there have been there was some back and forth about whether that extended to patios where there wasn't food, like breweries. And now breweries, you can go to their patios again. That had to be clarified. Great liquor laws in this province. Group fitness ca- classes have been canceled, but you can go to a gym and do a one-on-one personal trainer in limited settings. Indoor religious worship is off again. They had briefly opened up the idea of having up to 10 people in church again after closing the mall for a couple months. And they did that last week at the very confusing time, I think we talked about it on the pod, when it seemed like cases were starting to rise again and all these new restrictions came in on Monday. That's it for the actual laws, the actual orders. The rest are more advisories. You can't, you're advised to stay within your health region. Don't go traveling except for essential purposes. I guess Whistler Blackcomb being closed was an order. You're also encouraged to work from home. And they have now changed the guidance in schools to require masks for grade fours to 12. Although the rollout of that was pretty marred by a lot of confusion as the public health officer said it was a strong suggestion and the union BCTF called it a new requirement. And when the final guidance came out in the fine print, it is a requirement, but no one will be forced to do it because teachers are aiming to not rely on punitive measures wherever possible. So that's where we're at. If, if you're not going to enforce it, don't call it a requirement. That's been, I think, a consistent problem through all of this is the government wants people to do a bunch of stuff to help stop the spread, but hasn't really been willing to actually do the hard work and making sure there's full compliance on it. Outside of, I don't know, every three weeks or so, some news story about a party host getting ticketed or something, there has really been no effort made on the part of the government to actually get people to follow the rules beyond just a you know stern address from the public health officer a couple times a week, which if you're the person who's watching these live briefings, you're probably not the 
person who needs to listen up and actually have the rules repeated to them. And it's not just that, but it's that they're getting even less accessible in each of these briefings. Shannon talked about that on the podcast last week. And just today, there was a briefing that was supposed to be more of a answer the questions of the press style, like just a very quick off the top, here are the numbers, and then right into common questions. And I tuned out fairly quickly after, but I watched some reporters on Twitter after note that it was something about 40, 45 minutes before Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry had finished their, what they described as lectures on the basic science of vaccines, no actual news in there after they gave the numbers of the day. And all of that time could have been given to reporters. Instead, they got 15, 20 minutes at the end to do their usual two questions each. And I don't know, that's probably not the best way to be mixing it up right now. Like you need reporters on your side. You need ways to get this message out stronger and better. I think the new restrictions are a necessary wake up call to people, whether they're strong enough or not is debatable, but at least there's something. It's still pretty minimal though, overall, just not having indoor dining and no group fitness classes or indoor worship service. Like that's still a pretty minor change overall in this and the other thing is that it's only a through three week break which just looking at other places hasn't necessarily been a long enough time period to really get cases under control that's what one and a half to two generations of infection and even in the past in bc where we've brought in short-term measures, they end up being extended and extended. So I think the maybe the idea of three weeks is just to be a little bit optimistic to give people a bit of energy. Hey, just put in three weeks and we'll get through this. And then in two and a half weeks, it'll be actually we're going to need another two weeks at least. Um, it's been but 13 hopefully they can start to show a trajectory there. It has been 13 long months. Like nobody is being fooled by this three week crap. Like it's either going to be three weeks and we're going to lift the restrictions whether or not the case numbers are what they are in a good spot or we're just going to do it until the case numbers get to be where they need to be and in that case they should just come out and say what the actual what the actual metric is they're going to use on this because if they're not going to do that just this continuous two more weeks three weeks just a little bit longer stuff wears a bit thin and nobody's believes the public health people when they make announcements anymore because they can't give a consistent goalpost or even just say what the actual goalpost is on this. And then, yeah, the, the other thing that I take some issue with on this is the kind of unnecessary confusion and uncertainty around a couple different items. You, you touched on the patio rules and what the exemptions are and from Monday through till today, it looked like it was going to be that restaurants could continue patio service, but breweries and places that don't have, don't serve full meals couldn't, even though it makes no sense why gathering with a couple people outside is somehow less risky when there's a burger involved. It just makes no sense. And they eventually corrected it, but why did it take that long to correct it? Why wasn't this actually ready to go from the start? 
Because if you think back to where we were in May, June of last year, when we'd done our first kind of clamp down or starting to open up, they were clear that it, if things got worse, they were going to bring us back under a bunch of restrictions. That was 10 months ago. They should have had a plan written down on these are the various incremental steps we're going to take. This is everything involved there. There is really no excuse to be winning it at this point on that. There, there should be a written playbook that has all of these questions already thought through. Remember when we had phases of our reopening and people were like, we ever go back a step? And they hemmed and hawed and it. it seemed like it was a largely one-way direction. We don't talk about the phases anymore. The re well, I think I have a good idea why we didn't go back. It's because when cases actually started to spike was October. And that was in the middle of an election. And I, rightly or wrongly, and I think wrongly, we, or the not we, the public health people didn't want to tighten things up in the middle of an election where the question of whether it was right to call an election during a pandemic was a topic of discussion. But at no point since then have we gone down to the average daily or seven day average moving cases that we had at any point in October. That ship sailed. We never really got back to it, but that is unfortunate. But I, I think there's been resistance in Victoria about acknowledging that because of the awkward timing involved. I just had to pull up the COVID data dashboard. The spike in late summer that you're talking about started in August and it's like slowly trended up pretty much linearly until late September. It actually dropped a little bit in the start of October, came back up a little bit. It was about October 20th that I would say it switched from like that low 170 seven day moving average to suddenly a huge spike. So arguably it was right like exactly right after the election that cases really started to spike. But not to re-litigate that, let's... Well, it's in it. I'll just say, like that's that line there pretty much looks like an exponential graph. And the thing about exponential growth is it looks slow at first, even when it suddenly gets not to be that. Yeah, that it spiked afterwards, but the time to catch exponential growth is when it is low. Which is also something we could have been doing for the last two and a half months. But here we are. Let's go to Ontario. And I'll start with the worst thing happening there is that nothing is actually happening until Saturday. Their emergency break has been pre-announced and will last for four weeks. But you have until Saturday to still do all of the things that won't be allowed then which luckily the virus will wait. Is that really all that different than what happened here? So last Thursday, Friday, we had what, 800 followed by 900 cases the day after. Everyone was looking at that wide-eyed thinking, oh crap, this is getting bad. And that took them another couple of days to actually act on that information and announce it Monday. Like The only difference here is that They've given a little more of a heads up, but like the things are getting bad, we should act threshold, and the things are 
going to be done to counteract that. It's still a couple days, whether it's Ontario or here. The restrictions in Ontario are more severe than here in BC. There's a prohibition on indoor gatherings. We've had that for quite a while now, and outdoor gatherings are limited to five people. We're at 10. In-person shopping in essential grocery store pharmacies is limited to the 50% capacity of the store, and all other retail has to be down to 25% capacity. We've never actually, as far as I know, limited capacity of retail in BC, and I've seen that used elsewhere. When I was shopping, I don't know, two, three weeks ago for groceries, they, they did hold me and a few other people outside to w- let some more people out. So there are places that are doing it here, but I think it's a little more kind of hit and miss rather than a structured rule. I know we did put in some rules about that early, but I honestly cannot recall if during the restrictions lifting of the summer that was one of the things that went away and never came back or if it's still technically on the books but once again nobody's actually bothering to make I think sure a lot of it was forced, done so I think a lot of it was done be. through workplace worksafe BC and your covid safety plans every business had to set up and so we don't see the capacity as publicly as some of these other announcements That said, Ontario is also going to prohibit all personal care services. BC is leaving those open, saying there's no evidence of transmission. I don't have the data from either province to know which is true. Ontario is closing all dining, indoors and outdoors. You can only go takeout or delivery from your favorite restaurants there. Indoor and outdoor fitness is pretty much all closed, though there are some minor exceptions and day camps are closed and religious services can continue with a cap of 15 people and no socializing before or after. So overall, largely more restrictive than here in BC. But of course, a week later. I don't know where exactly they are on the trend. Yeah. Uh, I. Yeah, so I did look it up for here. The current rules for retail businesses are five square meters of unencumbered space per person, occupancy limits must be posted, and where practical have signs to direct people in which way they should be traveling through the store. So yeah, technically there are occupancy limits, but it is the enforcement is so half-assed on that that there, there might as well not be. Well, and now let's go to Quebec where things are pretty serious in Quebec City, Levais. I don't know that city and Gatineau, they have pretty much been shut down for 10 days effective. I think it's today or yesterday. All schools in those cities are closed. They're all going to online learning. All non-essential businesses are required to shut down. Religious gatherings are still allowed up to 25 people. Interestingly, it's the most lax of the three provinces. There's a strong advisory to everyone not to travel to the cities and they are implementing a curfew from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. once again saying don't be outside because night spread is a significant thing. I think it's just a way to emphasize the stay home, let's get this under control kind of approach. And like I said, Alberta, Jason Kenney today, looking at 850 cases, talked about how in a month they will have a thousand people in the hospital because of the UK variant, but people should just try to do more with the restrictions that are in place. So 
basically doing what we were doing up until a week ago. Yeah, I think Alberta's restrictions were a little bit stronger than we were last week, but maybe a little bit less strong than we just brought in. I didn't look exactly where they are at. But Kenny seems to think people are just not following them. And so the best strategy he has is to chastise them. So yeah, like we were doing. Yeah, the unfortunate problem with that is you hit a point of diminishing returns pretty quick on that. Right? <clears throat> there are people who adhere to every guidance that's giving. There are going to be people who would kind of like to, but life's messy and complicated. And, and in the balancing of everything slip quite a bit and a bit of a sterner hand with a little enforcement may actually get results there. And there are also people that are just not going to abide by the rules short of having them rigorously enforced. And unfortunately, there seems to be basically nowhere in the country, maybe parts of the Atlantic regions that really actually seem to care that much about dealing with that ladder. And I think the other thing, like you mentioned, a lot of people are struggling to manage with this, even people who are well-intentioned. And there's just been like an utter abdication from particularly the federal government, it feels, in the last few months to support Canadians. We have the replacements for the CERB, which have been routinely criticized, including by me on this podcast. But there's no steps to really move beyond that here in BC. We still don't have paid sick leave, despite Horgan being on the record in December saying, when the evidence comes to show that it's necessary, we'll do it. Just today, they announced they'll provide unpaid leave for people to go get your COVID vaccine, as in, you can't be fired if you take a half a day to go get your shot, which is great. I would be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked because there are some awful employers out there, but that's it's such a bare minimum. They say they're going to look at doing paid leave for the vaccine, but we'll have to consult with business and labor first. And so don't we allow paid time off to go vote, right? Why not just do that exact same thing? You get three hours, go do it. There's such low bars. Yeah, there, there is really no reason, particularly just for such a small one-time thing, not to just go ahead and do it. The uh, Every level of government has been weirdly, I don't want to say cautious, because that would imply they're actually being, I think, pro. that would imply being proactive in how they're approaching this and actually trying to reduce risk. But... Hesitant is probably the better word to really do much. Our governments have lost the ability. We basically, may, as a country. Our governments have lost the ability to govern going. or the willingness to govern. They're more managers. in. Yeah, we, we basically made. Yeah, we made no effort really to keep COVID out of the country in the first place. It, and then when the variants started popping up, we did basically nothing to stop them from coming in. Yeah, we suspended flights from the UK for, I don't know, well, like a little bit, but we let the ones already in the air land here without adding stricter quarantine procedures at that point. We, ha we now have variants from 
Brazil, South Africa, the UK, a bunch of places here in BC and across the country. That didn't have to be the case. We could have had strict quarantine procedures from January, February of last year on this to make sure nothing got in here and couldn't get a foothold. We didn't bother doing that. We basically made no effort to really stamp the thing out here in BC, even though going back to where we were in the summer, that was absolutely possible. We were hitting an average of eight or nine cases a day for a period there. We could have, with a little more push, got gotten that down to zero. Just overall, almost nothing beyond taking like the bare minimum approach once CERB and, and those policies were put in place basically pretty much a year ago today. Has any government really done much beyond, I guess, the scramble to speed up our vaccine procurement when it looked like we were going to f- fall real behind the Americans on it in kind of December, January of this year? I will say the one thing that I think the BC government gets credit for, particularly in comparison to other governments across Canada that have fallen down again on this file, is in long-term care. After the hit we took in the spring of last year in people dying in long-term care homes, the government made a number of actions that we've talked about in terms of changing how staffing is done, ending a lot of these contracts that were subcontracted five times so no one knew who was working anywhere and just overall finally putting a focus on long-term care that had been neglected for so long. And it seems like we've managed between that and the priority vaccinations there to have really staved off so many of the deaths in the second and third waves that we got in the first waves, which undoubtedly drove a lot of that complacency. But I think in some, I've seen some reporting that the other provinces have not made those obvious steps and taken those obvious steps that we did here and are still facing the same kind of situations in long-term care. And it's just the fact that they've gotten some vaccines out. That means it's not been so much more terrible, but it's still not gone well. And so marks for that, at least. Yeah, that, that's been good. Oh, yeah, this isn't even just a Canadian issue. Like pretty much, broadly speaking, the kind of North Atlantic developed club of developed countries, none of them have done particularly well on pretty much anything. It, the UK and US were, I, I guess, get decent marks on vaccine development. Although even there, I think the failure to really consider human challenge trials as an option extended things out probably by several more months than it had to and cost a bunch of unnecessary lives from that respect. But nevertheless, they still got stuff approved faster than ever before. So I guess that's one good thing, but none of the other stuff they did, I think, turned out particularly well in terms of dealing with this. And just overall, it seems like a a lot of countries in this club are struggling to have institutions that are responsive enough to change in circumstances to actually come in and or actually respond effectively to 
things like pandemics. We still don't really have rapid testing here or in the U.S. for the most part. And, and that's also you know, causing a lot of pro- or causing more problems than it's solved, I think, by uh, delaying the rolling out of that. I could take this opportunity to take a quick shot at the commonality between those countries you're referring to being individualistic neoliberalism of the past couple decades. But instead, I think I want to complain about our own premier a little bit more and the seemingly ad-lib tangent he went off on Monday at the start of the press conference that people were still talking about, at least up till yesterday, potentially even today. I'm angry about that. So yeah, I don't think the annoyance is... Let me just... Let me just quote him for those who may have somehow missed this. He said in part, it's the cohort from 20 to 39 who are quite frankly putting the rest of us in a challenging position. The directions will be quite clear from Dr. Henry, but my appeal to you, the the youth, the young, is do not blow this for the rest of us. Do not blow this for your parents and your neighbors and others who have been working really hard, making significant sacrifices so we can't get good outcomes for everybody really just everyone else is doing their part why don't you kids all where the cases are this is big why don't like, you get young off people? my lawn energy from oh. the premier yeah it did not land well like he acknowledged it part of his rant that the people who are watching are not the ones who need to hear his message by definition but damn from so many under 40s pointing out that it's 20 to 39 year olds who are frontline workers putting their lives at risk because they don't have any other choice but to work for a salary to people talking just about how there actually are a lot of boomers and older people who also flaunt the rules quite regularly to just so many people are doing so much and it just did not land at all no, and like, with anyone. I mean, just taking it out to a slightly more abstract level, like it just doesn't make sense to call out a demographic group because there's a you know slightly higher caseload among them. You can like this thing went over lead balloon, but you can imagine how much worse it would have been if in well March of last year he was berating the elderly for the higher case counts among them or there's been a spikes in area it's, it's a little hard to say because they haven't released the information but you can infer from some of the geographic concentrations that there's been higher case counts on communities that are disproportionately made of people of color like he wouldn't have gone out and called that out even though it's the same underlying logic on why that's flawed in all of those cases I think I saw a teacher, or I heard a secondhand, a teacher was tweeting out that teachers don't take the, I'm going to punish you all for the actions of a few kind of approach for many reasons, including the ethics of it. But it's also just an ineffective approach to discipline, right? And that's what this came off of as trying to yell at an entire generation when it's not everyone's fault. It just made a bunch of people mad. Like, there were NDP youth wings. I think the UBC Young New Democrats or the youth wing of the party were passing motions condemning the premier, which after he just won a majority government, you don't usually have 
not open rebellion, but some pretty harsh criticism coming from your base. And like the 20 to 39 year olds are probably pretty strong NDP supporters relative to some other demographics. It's bad politically, it's bad public health messaging, it's bad strategy. I don't know where it comes from other than just, like you said, that get off my lawn energy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, I don't think there's any other way to read it than a, a lack of respect for that cohort. I'll, we'll link to Rob Shaw's piece on the Orca Well, yeah. that calls this the wrong message at the worst time. Well, it's pretty good. Yeah. And I, I think more fundamentally that than just showing a lack of respect for a fairly significant portion of the public and a portion of the public that is dealing with a lot of challenges other generations haven't when it comes to stuff like housing affordability and a bunch of other stuff. It's also just an incredible failure of leadership and ability to take responsibility. If anyone is blowing it for us, it's the government. They're the ones leading the province through this. They're the ones who are ultimately responsible. If people out there aren't following the rules, it's on the premier and on the rest of the government to take the steps to make sure that happens. And until this Monday, everything that was coming out of the province was basically telling the general public that, yeah, things are more or less okay. Last week, Horgan said that things were going in the right direction. The government was talking about easing up restrictions for the long weekends, religious activities on that. And if you're a person who doesn't obsessively go to the case numbers every day, your takeaway from that would have been things are going good. I probably don't have to worry as much. And the fact that was the message coming out is entirely on John Horgan and his team. And I think it was Friday, Thursday, one of the last days in last week when the case numbers were getting high. On Friday, when Ditz was asked about whether they're considering circuit breakers, he talked about how well the plan was going so far. And Frankly, if anyone should be held accountable, it's the health minister for as cases were spiking, saying everything was okay. Like The accountability is not falling where it should here. And I think we spent the better part of a half hour talking about all the ways the government has failed to really tackle this as thoroughly as possible. And that is almost entirely on John Horgan and the people he has delegated authority to on this. So yeah, John Horgan, stop blowing it for the rest of us. Yeah, journalist Andrew Curiata had a great Twitter thread that I'll throw in the show notes about just how gaslit he felt by the communications out of the province and how it just was, we're not doing this, we're not doing this, we would never do this, to suddenly we are, we have to do this. We Things have suddenly shifted overnight. So very frustrating. A whole generation is pissed. But it seems like one millennial was so pissed, he decided to do something about it. Scott, tell us about Gavin Dew. Yeah, so this week, the BC Liberal leadership race got its second entrant. Gavin Dew, a political strategist from here in Vancouver. Uh, he's worked on a bunch of 
campaigns throughout the past decade or so for the the BC Liberals ran in the Mount Pleasant by-election. I think it was 2013. Being Mount Pleasant, that was an entirely unwinnable by-election, but did the good work of representing the Liberals in the riding. Yeah, fairly young guy in his 30s, young family. So Gavin's big pitch, I think, is more of a time for generational renewal. The BC Liberals haven't really been speaking to the issues that are affecting a, a lot of British Columbians. And as a result, the, the party's lost a bunch of ground and needs to regain that. So Gavin's a very interesting candidate in this race. He's previously worked on Kevin Falcon and Michael Lee's campaign, leadership campaigns. He's fairly prominent within political circles in Metro Van, particularly among millennials. Oh yeah, uh, sorry, I should admit. Like you said, wants the party to be more progressive on social issues, less maybe more urbanist as well. Yeah, so I also forgot to mention, uh, a couple of years back, founded the Forum for Millennial Leadership, trying to get more young people of all parties really involved in the political process and taking on you know larger leadership roles within the province. So I think very strong bona fides in that respect. Yeah, and I think that brand had all come together to really work well for him to launch this week. I think there were a lot of rumors that he was going to jump into the race, potentially much later down the road, see how it susses out and if there's space, he'll, he'd jump in. But I do wonder how much of his thinking was influenced by just how bad of a week the premier had with millennials for him to say, I will be the clearly contrasting voice this week. And it works. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a lot to it. Like, you, you could hardly ask for a better time to, or a better situation to launch a campaign that, that really is focused on kind of the next generation taking a stronger leadership role in the province. Our aim is to talk to Gavin as well as other BC Liberal leadership candidates over the coming months. So hopefully you'll hear from yeah. him soon. Uh, so yeah, this is still early days in the leadership race. Voting won't take place until 2022 with the new leader being announced in early February. I believe the membership deadline is end of this year. Yeah, I'm quite excited to see what Gavin has to offer here. I think this is probably the campaign that's most likely to really, I think, offer good solutions that def definitely come from like a BC Liberal framework, but a, a framework that I think actually has a lot to offer when it comes to dealing with issues of affordability, the economy broader. And I think there's a lot of space here that uh, a campaign like his can really uh, seize on it and made an impact on the race to be BC leader and I guess ultimately premier. Well, moving on to quick takes. Speaking of affordability and housing, BC Housing this past week has announced a raft of new housing units and projects coming online or getting purchased from existing stock, whether it's old hotel spaces or 
a raft of new housing, uh, a lot of it coming from the purchase of existing stock, typically of the old hotel variety. Although I think there may be a couple other different types of housing built in there. But yeah, overall, a couple hundred new units, I think, spread across the lower mainland, the island, and the rest of the province. Yeah, quite a few. And the big one today in Vancouver was almost 250 units across three buildings, the biggest being the province buying the Patricia Hotel in the downtown east side. This is to provide space for everyone who's currently living in Strathcona Park. I'm sure I'll get to that in a few weeks with Matthew on Camby Report. In Revelstoke, there's a 24-bed unit being built. In Prince George, there's a new unit new building going up with 50 affordable rentals and 50 supportive units in Victoria there's a hundred or there's 260 spaces for people experiencing homeless across four buildings that are being built in a newly purchased building that's being renovated Langford's got another 120 affordable homes just opening Whistler's got 44 rental homes opening for people who work in the area Haida Gwaii's got 19 supportive homes opening and there was an announcement from the Rapid Housing Initiative of the federal government partnering with the province. We I talked with Matthew about one of those in Vancouver on the latest episode of Cambria Report, but there's also 91 homes through that project in the capital region. So I can't do the math right now because I'm very tired after my first week back at work. More than just a couple hundred, but less than a thousand. And that's just the announcement in the last week. Really good to see. I'm sure there's individual things to pick apart about each of these and the perpetual cry in housing affordability in this province is it's never enough and this isn't enough but hey if they can announce this many units every week for the rest of the year that'd be a great pace to i have a feeling the pace isn't going to be sustainable yeah I'll yeah, I do wonder how much of this was just like coincidental timing and working it into a housing week I think of announcements, probably a fair just so it that. feels better. They've bought up over the past couple of months quite a few different hotels to provide this housing, and there's just a limit on how many of them are going to be on the market. So like, it's, it's not the sort of thing that can be continued. And I guess speaking of nitpits, that's probably the one little bit of reservation I have here is that... I. It is without a doubt good that they're buying, that there's these new housing units coming online, but Vancouver wasn't exactly flush with spare hotel capacity before. And I do worry that six months to a year from now, we're going to have problems in that space as a second order effect of this. And the end result might be a renewed uh, enthusiasm for Airbnb in which might ultimately blunt some of the effectiveness of it. In the meantime, lots of spaces for people who need them. We'll deal with those other problems when they get here. But one thing that will continue to challenge us for more housing in many different ways is immigration and not necessarily in a bad way, but We've talked in the past about the 100 million people in Canada by 2100 goal and project and ambition. The newest voice to join that chorus call is former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, who's been interviewed for by John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail, talking about Canada should focus on expanding our population. 
Yeah. So we've talked a bit in the past on this. We interviewed someone from the Century Initiative. I think they're the big driving force organizationally wise for this in Canada here. You know, refer back to that episode, which fortunately I cannot recall the number, but we'll throw the link in the show notes for that one. Yeah, I think this is a great to see on Foreign Prime Minister Mulroney's part and definitely, a, I think, a big win for that larger push and it's something that I think we should definitely be... Push. Ah, here, Andrew, you're in for driving it. It's episode 203. Just as a country, we're I think we're held back a bit, quite a bit by our low population numbers. The issues with domestic PP manufacturing, pharmaceutical manufacturing, which we've really encountered this year is in not a small part because just as a small country of 38 million, it's hard to maintain that kind of market specialization that's needed to produce a lot of specialty products like that and becoming a large enough country that has a population to support a lot of highly specialized critical industries would benefit us a lot. And beyond that, just as the U.S. continues to suffer its political challenges and instabilities, and I think probably the strongest isolationist sentiment since the 1930s, it would be a good idea if we developed ourselves and a large factor of that is having a large population to I think strike a more independent path and have less foreign policy and defense reliance and and economic reliance on the U.S. and that can only happen by closing the gap in terms of population disparities. Yeah I'm all for more immigration and kind of tearing down borders for many different reasons. Some you talked about some of the more humanitarian climate refugee urgency and moral imperative of that. I've also just cracked Harsha Walia's new book, Border and Rule, which is pretty critical analysis of Canada, America, Australia in particular, as well as Europe, but a number of other countries' approaches to borders and immigration and migration and the various bigotries and racisms and problems and class issues that are all tied into that. I don't know what the conclusion's going to be other than maybe everything's just bad, but I'm hoping there's a optimistic bit at the end, though it looks like a pretty, you know, importantly critical book from the start. I'll review it in a few weeks when I finally manage to get through it. It's pretty dense. But good. Speaking of dense things that are maybe not quite as good, nuclear waste is back in the news, as well as former prime ministers. As CBC published a piece today that former prime minister John Trichin is part of a pretty secretive project to set up a nuclear waste depository in Labrador. This is a wild story. Like, they interview the new premier of Newfoundland, Fury, who says he doesn't know anything about this. And Chrétien apparently approached him once during the leadership convention when he was running to be leader and mentioned this. And he was like, no, that's never happening. We're not going to bury nuclear waste in Labrador. But Chrétien 
apparently got roped in. To, in his words, he's not super involved in it, though his name is on some of the key letters going back and forth between the law firm he's in, this PR firm out of Japan, as well as a few other agencies who are trying to look at can we bring nuclear waste from other countries and bury it in Labrador? And they like talk in the letters about how secret they need to keep this because it'll likely blow up. No, not it gets physically, too public. but the uh, and, metaphorically in, in the press and the no the discourse. Yeah. With with nuclear discussion, you and do like, want to be pretty clear on that. Kretchen frames it. <laughs> that is fair. Very fair. Kretchen does frame it in an interesting way that Canada is a global exporter of uranium. So we have a somewhat moral, ethical imperative and duty to take it back and store it in the future. And I'm not totally opposed to that argument. And I think there is there are lots of good opportunities in Canada for the kind of deep underground storage facilities for nuclear waste that could be effective. But this is not how you yeah, do it. Like CBC quotes several experts who say, you you need government on side to do this. You need the people on side. You can't just like sneak around in back rooms and suddenly expect this to all work out. Yeah, the process here is weird and doesn't seem ideal for sure. I, mean, I think at some point it would have had to go public. There would have had to be a bunch of regulatory issues dealt with. It would have had... There was only so long this could state wire before just the necessity of moving along with it would change that but putting aside the it sounds like Kretchen had signed on to be the like oil the grease to make that all easier with Canadian jurisdictions and Canadian politicians but even that he didn't seem to be effective we don't know all the uh, bathroom details but so putting aside the questionable process here I actually think the idea makes a fair bit of sense. Labrador's just part of the Canadian shield that's about as geologically stable a place on Earth as you can find. It makes a lot of sense that way. It's remote. There's only something like 27,000 people living in Labrador, which isn't a... Which is to say, you can probably find a spot in Labrador that is very far away from anyone, where the risks become a lot lower. There's a fair bit going for that. So, in that respect, it's it's an idea worth looking at for sure. And no place wants to be the nuclear depository, but we do have to find somewhere for it. Yeah, there's some new generation reactors that didn't process spent fuel and burn that. But there's also just a lot of low-level waste of contaminated non-fuel items that do need to be safely disposed of and stored in a repository somewhere. And uh, all things being equal, Labrador seems to be a pretty decent candidate for that. If whether or not nuclear waste will be coming here from around the world. One thing that won't be permitted is certain Canadians from going to China, following Canada and the United States and EU and the UK imposing sanctions on 
certain individuals in Xinjiang province in China for in the Xinjiang province of China for the ongoing human rights abuses and genocide of the Uyghur population. China's foreign ministry has announced that they are sanctioning the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom Chair Gail Manchin, the Vice Chair Tony Perkins, as well as Canadian Member of Parliament Michael Chong, and just the entire subcommittee on international human rights of our House of Commons who debated and eventually passed the initial motion, I think, finding that there was a genocide there. It's not clear to me. I'm looking at the actual press release on the Government of China's website. If it's all the individuals on that committee or just the committee as a whole, like if the committee of people wanted to go visit China, they'd be barred. Or if it's the MPs who sit on the committee, which is a good sign about the strength of your prohibitions. All of these individuals are prohibited from entering China, Hong Kong, and Chinese citizens cannot do business with them. It's basically just a simple retaliatory sanction for what Canada and others did to them. I think the notable thing is, let's talk about Michael Chong. Yeah, yeah, just before you go there, yeah, I, I, it is retaliatory, but also quite a bit different because we're sanctioning involvement in genocide and they're responding back because they don't like being called out on it. But yeah, the, the decision to sanction Michael Chong's and- Sorry, but if anyone, they deny it. Of course, they're going to just snap back. We can, they're not going to suddenly be like, oh, we actually have a genocide because you sanctioned us. We apologize now. This was the inevitable result. Yeah, it's not so it's fact, not, if, it if Europe- or someone sanctioned us for the genocide against indigenous peoples, we'd probably slap them a sanction just out of spite. This is how politics, global politics tends to work. It's not always fair. Yeah, I, I'm saying it's not surprising, not that, but it's not surprising, but it is conceptually quite a different thing. But yeah, the decision to sanction Michael Tron, in one hand, I can see why they went that way because he did spearhead the commons motion on this, but in terms of its actual effect, it's definitely a case of backfire, I think, because in general, he's a very well-respected MP by all sides in the House and just Canada generally, I think, uh, to the extent that people know who he is. And like, as a result, it definitely, I think, caused more people to pay attention and if anything raises the salience of the issue and creates a rally around the flag effect. I don't see how effective this is going to be in terms of what they're trying to get out of it. Maybe all they want to get out of it is to just show the people of China that they're doing something. It's not about us. It's just an internal matter for them. It's a pride thing. They economically targeted us. We're going to economically target some of them tit for tat. Just, and they can even point, hey, we targeted Michael Chong. That's a Chinese-sounding name. He must be a traitor to the homeland in some kind of extended view. Like I can see that kind of reasoning for picking on him specifically. Yeah. He says he views us as a badge of honor and can 
think that's going to be a, a statement that a lot of Canadians will agree with. So yeah, I have a feeling this probably isn't going to be the last event in this saga, but definitely something to note and keep an eye on. The last opinion. No, the next. Sorry. The next thing I think will be the sentencing of the two Michaels and whatever comes next in the Meng Wanzhou trial. Yeah, I don't think that China doesn't. China has a history of not moving particularly quickly on the sentencing parts, particularly when it's a political case like this. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're holding off on the sentencing until whatever the next thing that happens with Main One Zhou is. I'll find it quite amusing if she walks because the RCMP and CBSA violated her charter rights and all of this was for not, which is actually a quite likely scenario at this point. Yeah, I believe there has been yeah that issue raised in the ongoing court proceedings. But in the meantime, I think overall a Canadians' views regarding the People's Republic of China have think soured quite significantly as a result of everything that's happened in the last few years. So it's going to be an interesting thing to watch, just how it continues to evolve and affects Canadian politics. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>